Good morning. Happy Independence Day, y'all. Yeah, 245 years old. Who knew we were gonna make it, right? Here we are, July 4th, you're here. Uh, I hope that you celebrate today and have lots of fun with your family. Uh, if you're here uh, in this room, welcome. Uh, let me hear you out there in the lobby. Show them that you're here. <laughs> There's always that one guy, right? Online. <laughs> Thanks for representing on their behalf. Hey, if you're here for the first time, we'd love to get to know you. And so you can just click the QR code that says connect. Uh, right there in front of you. It'll take you to an electronic connect card. Just give us a little bit of information. You're not committing to anything other than uh, we'll send you a newsletter. Uh, you'll get a phone call just welcoming you. Uh, Ted, our connections pastor, he'll call you. If you don't answer, he'll call you back. Um, so uh, yeah, just <laughs> when you see it, just go ahead and answer. It'll be better for you to get it, get it over with, all right? So, uh, uh, but we just want you to know, we're glad you're here. We would love for you to be a part of our body and, and everything that God's doing. Uh, there's, there's something for all ages here, but the bottom line is uh, we're on mission. So we're an aircraft carrier and we're inviting you to land on this aircraft carrier and get fueled up and sent out on a great mission. And so uh, we, we hope that this isn't a place that you get too comfortable. Um, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about in about 90 seconds. And so, uh, uh, so, so here's what I want you to know. Everybody look right at me. I wanna make sure that we're very clear. I need you to know this. I love you. That's setting the pace for Revelation chapter 18, right? So I just want you to know, I love you. And I want you to know another thing. I have an American flag hanging on my house right now, okay? Look at my kicks today. I'm wearing American shoes, right? So I say all that to say, today's gonna be a little hard, okay? And so um, as, as we embrace this today, here's what I want you to know. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think you need to really receive everything that happens today. Maybe it's conviction that everything may not be okay in your life, that God may be calling you to your next step in your walk with him. If you don't know Jesus, here's, here's what I want you to know. Um, I grew up in, in a culture that this whole idea of just really fierce, harsh, um, you may feel a little bit of that, but it's, it's straight out of the passage today. And so it's kind of hard as we read through it. And here's what I've committed to you since the beginning. We will not shy away from hard passages. And I don't think it's a mistake that this has fallen on July 4th today. Because I think there are some things that God wants to say about us as a nation, about you as an individual, and how we are called to this next level in our relationship with Jesus. And so um, just receive that today. Uh, Revelation chapter 18, you can turn in your Bibles there. Um, last week, remember John was taken into this vision of the great prostitute. Remember we said prostitute about 40 times last week, it felt like. And so uh, you can say prostitute in church as long as it's in the passage. So uh, uh, this great prostitute who we find out is this ancient city, Babylon. But here was the tricky part. He wasn't just talking about the ancient city, Babylon, but he was talking about the system of belief of the city, of Babylon and what it represented. It was a system that promoted wealth, decadence, power, debauchery, sexuality, self-exaltation. Ultimately, it represents the anti-God. 
Everything that is opposed to God is what Babylon was about. And so the prostitute in this vision was riding on the back of the beast. And remember, we, we were introduced to the beast in Revelation chapter 13, and he, he had, you know, 10 heads and, or, or seven heads and 10 horns on him, and he looked a lot like Satan, the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. So we saw this false trinity of the dragon, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth. And, and we're talking here about the beast out of the sea who was known as the antichrist, the false Christ. And here it says the prostitute was riding on the back of this antichrist. What did that mean? It meant that this anti-false Christ was propping up this system of belief. So this city, Babylon, riding on the Antichrist is very simply saying, listen, there is a system of belief that the enemy of God will use over and over and over again. It's very cyclical, and we'll see it more here in just a second, but it's always being propped up by a false God, something that looks real, but is false. And so also important as we walk through the passage first, she's got tattooed Babylon the Great on her forehead, but then just in the next verse, it talks about the city on seven hills. The city on seven hills was not Babylon, but Rome. And so if you were living in the mid-90s AD and you were, not, not the 1990s, that was a great decade, by the way, but uh, we're talking about 90 AD. If you were living in that time, um, you, you would have known that they're talking about Rome there. And so now we've moved from ancient Babylon to, in their time, modern-day Rome, which represented all of these same things, money, power, wealth, self-actualization, sexuality. But here's what we knew for sure, and in history, it proved itself to be true. They were warring against the people of God, right? Feeding them to lions, boiling them in oil, chopping their heads off. I mean, this is what was going on to the people of God during this time. But this was nothing new. If you look at the Old Testament, again, you've got Egypt, you've got Assyria, you've got uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then moving forward into the future, this cycle through the Ottoman Empire, through the, the Soviet Union, through communist China, through the United States of America. The cycle goes on. This idea of wealth, sex, power, gaining it, at all cost. And we see that Babylon keeps rising and falling over and over again. And ultimately, here's what we need to know. It rises and falls. It's always warring against the people of God. So just think about your life for just a minute. Um, I know that, that when you think about persecution for your faith, um, we don't see it the way that it's happening in other parts of the world today. There are people that literally, the day they decide to follow Jesus, are at very least disowned from their family, but at most, they are brutally murdered. And so that's happening today in other parts of the world. We've talked about this theme of martyrdom throughout Revelation, but it's happening today. And we don't get that. And so it's hard for us to embrace that. But know this, in the U.S. today... If you follow Jesus, if you say, I believe the Bible is the 100% inspired word of God, if you stand in this and if you value this, just know you will not be popular. In fact, it will be countercultural for you to live under the authority and leadership of Jesus. And know this, if you choose to do that, you will always be at war with the culture. 
Because the t- culture will tell you um, that you're uh, at very least irrelevant, at most intolerant, exclusive. You get the idea. And some of you are, are facing that in your life right now. And so it's kind of hard as we come into this today on Independence Day that, that maybe sometimes that image of Jesus with the American flag wrapped around him, maybe everything's not quite like that. Uh, we live in a post-Christian culture. You know, our Pledge of Allegiance still says one nation under God, but, but you know that, that that's trying to be removed all the time. That, that we are trying to scrub God and anything having to do with the people of God from our culture on a daily basis. So let's not be deceived into believing that we are this Christian nation. It's a, it's a tough reality as we look at this today. And here's the thing. All who give in to Babylon will ultimately mourn because she's a cruel lover that promises the world but can't ultimately deliver. I love you guys. It's getting really quiet in here. So uh, today on Independence Day, as we celebrate 245 years of freedom, we've got to evaluate and contrast God's dream with the American dream. Because I think what we're finding more and more is they are looking drastically different. And I think about even a year ago where it was not in vogue to gather in houses of worship. Feeling like that freedom was taken away. Do you remember that? That was just last year, right? And that feeling of, of, of being told there are parts of the nation that are still fighting about uh, gathering in, in places of worship. I mean, it's a real thing going on right now. And what is our response to that? We wanna storm and raise our fist and scream at the top of our lungs and raise our rhetoric with the rhetoric of the world. But maybe we have to ask deeper and tougher questions. And so here's a question that I want you to think about. For you, the person in your seat, what if I clung to as an American that does not mirror the gospel? Is there anything in my life that I have grabbed onto, that I've held onto with all that I can, that I know in my heart, if it were pulled away from me, my mourning would be so great, I would feel like I couldn't recover? Could be a possession. Could be a way of life. Could be a career. Could be your investments. I I don't know. See, if freedom has led you down a path of worshiping financial stability and security, sexual promiscuity, issues of sexual identity, pornography, entitlement to what you think you deserve, acclamation of stuff, ultimately the promise of your best life now, then it could be that you're caught up in the system and allure of Babylon. It's a hard truth. And so this morning, as we walk through this, just know this, it's real easy for you to think about this and think, man, my neighbor needs to hear this, right? (laughs) Man, my boss, (laughs) let me tell you what, I'm gonna gonna go give him the podcast tomorrow. (laughs) 
That was Josh. Man, just love him on his way out this morning. And by way out, I mean... Galatians 5.13 says this, and then we're gonna jump into the passage. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Here's the bottom line. Here's your litmus test. Who are you serving in your freedom? Who are you serving in your freedom? Are you serving you or are you serving God? Welcome to restoration. <laughs> Revelation 18, starting with verse one, it says this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. So here comes another angel's angel. angel has, uh, angels have been a theme of, of revelation throughout. And now another angel comes and it says he comes with great authority. So who gives him the authority? God, so God is the giver of all authority. Uh, he gives authority to everyone, including the enemy. He, he has all authority. And so this angel is coming down. He comes with authority. And then it says he illuminates the entire earth. So how bright does he have to be to illuminate the entire earth? Well, it, it kind of reminds me, remember last week we were talking about in chapter 15, and I guess two weeks ago, we were talking about being in the presence of Jesus in the secret place. And my question was, when you come out of the secret place, do you glow? Are you so alive and bright? Remember Exodus chapter 34, uh, in, in, in chapter 15, we saw the tent of meeting, the tent of witness, and that was the place where Moses would go in to meet with God. And when he came out, he would have to put a veil over his face because he shone so bright, like it was so bright that people could not look on him, but it wasn't about him. It was about the glory of God jumping off of him. And so the question is, are you in the secret place with Jesus? Is it transforming you so much that people can't look directly at you because you're shining so bright? Most of you are like, dude, that's hardcore. Yeah, it is. But it's the truth of what God wants to do and be in you. Matthew chapter five, verse 16 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, hey, listen, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. No, it, it, it stands up on a light stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And then he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They're not looking at your deeds, they're looking at the light coming off of you because of your intimacy with Jesus. Psalm 104, verse two. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. First Timothy chapter six, verse 15. God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, Lord of lords, listen, who alone is immortal and who lives in what? Unapproachable light. That's the power of God, y'all. This unapproachable light that when you get in it, you, you're either in repentance or you dead right? That, that's, that's what happens when we experience the glory of God. It should be overwhelming. And I would say that one of the, the, the major problems in the church today is that we've lost our awe of God. You know, that we're no longer like 
overwhelmed by the presence of God. And I want you to know, as your pastor, I drift in and out of it. I'm a guy just like you are. Some mornings I stand and worship and I just weep. I just, man, I just get all of the, all the feels and it just, it just kind of overwhelms me. But I'm a guy. And when I'm not in the best head space, I'm not living in the glory of God. How about you? Maybe this morning, it's been a long time since you would say, man, the glory of God has illuminated my life in such a way that I just feel transformed. That's his desire for you. So what happens when light is shown on something? It exposes darkness. Yeah, and so here the angel illuminates the earth. He is about to expose the darkness. He's about to drop some truth bombs on John. And so here we go. Verse two, with a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Okay, so here's what we need to know. Nothing new is being said in Revelation. So we've seen it throughout Revelation that, that constantly John is tying us back to the bigger story. He, he's, he's bringing correlation to something that's already happened. For instance, Isaiah Chapter 21, verse nine, it says, look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. He gives back the answer, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its God lie shattered on the ground. So this has already happened, right? So ancient Babylon has fallen and now there is this proclamation that now this new modern day Babylon, in that context, it's Rome. But remember, every system that has set itself up against the purposes of God has fallen over and over and over again. So if you wanna live outside of the will and the purposes of God, I would say roll the dice and in the words of Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, you will lose, okay? So it's just not gonna work. It's not gonna work. And Rocky IV is the best of all of those. So, so just as Babylon fell, now Rome is doomed to fall and every empire that sets itself up against the kingdom of God will ultimately fall. And then it says the, the, the system that Babylon has become a dwelling place for everything demonic. That sounds gross, right? What does that mean? It means that it is living under the control of the enemy. But again, we see it in Isaiah chapter 13. Look, it says this. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There are no nobads will pitch their tents. There are no shepherds will rest their flocks. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell. And there the wild goats will leap 
about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals, her luxurious palaces, her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. So this happened in Isaiah. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're, they're, they're letting us know prophetically that Babylon is gonna fall. And here's what we know. Where, where John was sitting in 90-ish AD, Babylon had already fallen and they never rose again. But the system came up and now here was Rome. And so really this was prophesying that Rome will fall. But here today, there's not a nation on the planet that can set itself up against the kingdom of God and win. It just doesn't happen. And look, all of these things about jackals and hyenas. I mean, it's this whole idea of, of the impure spirits, the unclean birds. And uh, I was talking to Josh uh, at the end of the service and he said, man, when I think about jackals and the hyena, you know what they do? They feast on dead things. Feasting on the dead. Babylon is going to its death. It's fallen. And it says that all the nations have drunk from the wine of her adulteries. Drunk on power, drunk on authority, drunk on getting theirs, which will make the fall that much greater. And so when we think about this imagery, think about, uh, when we think about uh, impure spirits, when we think about the demonic, I think a lot of us are like, well, hey, I would never partner with the enemy, right? None, none of us ever think about, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a deal with the devil, Right? I'm gonna shake his hand and I'm gonna say, hey, you do this for me and I'll serve you forever. Anybody ever done that? Don't raise your hand because this will get weird. All right, so, but, but, but here's what we have to see. We say we would never partner with evil, but remember in, in, in the last chapter in 17 that when John saw the prostitute, what did he do? He's like, she looks good. Right? It says that he marveled at her. He's looking at her going, hey, I get the allure. I, I get it. I mean, this is the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, right? Fireside chats, he and Jesus, you know, they're tight. And yet when he looks at the prostitute who is in direct opposition to the people of God, he looks and goes, mm, I, I mean, I kind of get it. Don't be deceived into believing that there's no way you would ever partner with the enemy? Because know this, some of you, even today, all of us at some point, we think we're living one way, but we're actually living another, right? We're deluded into thinking that everything is okay. She, look, she looks good, but she will ravage you with the consequences of sin and evil. So pause here. Some of you are saying, well, you know, I follow Jesus. I have Jesus so I could never be under control of the enemy. Really? I think for a lot of us, we look at it and go, man, here's the deal. When Jesus saved you, right, you have positional holiness. When, when God looks at you, he sees you as completely holy. But know this, personal holiness is a daily choice. 
And so we can live in positional holiness that Jesus through the cross has saved us once and for all that can never be taken away. But know this, you can partner with the enemy through habitual sin every day of your life and live outside of the purposes of Jesus. Don't kid yourself. And here's the challenge of that. Here's where we, we, we have to look and go, hmm. So when Jesus in Matthew 7 says, hey, on that day, many are gonna cry, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I do, 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 do to be acceptable to you? And Jesus is like, high five. It's like, I don't even know who you are. What that means is that Cultural Christianity sells this concept. Trust Jesus to keep you out of hell, to get you to heaven when you die. And then just kind of live a slightly better version of yourself, right? Compromise is okay. You do you, right? It really doesn't matter what I do daily because I've got positional holiness, right? It's where we have taken sin or grace to its extreme to say grace means I'm no longer punished for my sin. What if the empowering presence of God, that's what grace is, what if it gives you the desire to no longer want to sin? It doesn't mean you don't, but you're not pursuing it anymore. We said this last week, man, for, for, for a lot of us, so I'll include myself, there have been seasons in my life when I've got one foot in each kingdom. And in reality, when you say that, you've got both feet in one kingdom, and it's not the winning kingdom. So look at verse four. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. So who's he talking to here? The church. Remember where this whole thing started? Remember in, in chapter one, he's this Jesus who had eyes like fire and hair like wool, and he's this big giant Jesus. And he said, listen, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the one who was, is, and is to come. And then he says, hey, John, come with me, and I want you to write down seven letters to what? Seven churches. This is to the church. It's not just we get out of chapter three and go, well, this is no longer applies. No, once this is written, it's gonna be couriered to these churches in Asia Minor and they're gonna read all about God, his beautiful mercy, but also his judgment and his wrath for those who say no. So what's happening here? Yet again, in the middle of this apocalyptic book, in the middle of this book that we look and we see the carnage, we see all the hard things, what does God do? He calls out and says, come out, my people. Come out. It's God's mercy on display. In the midst of judgment, once again, we see the mercy of God saying, listen, you have succumbed to Babylon. Remember those seven churches, five of the seven were either living in compromise or in direct opposition to God. And they didn't even know it. And Jesus is calling them out in chapters two and three. Go back and read it. He, was, he, he would ultimately say, hey, listen, if you do not repent, I'm gonna remove your lampstand. 
I'm gonna remove your effectiveness in the world because know this, only I will get glory. And over time, if you will not live under my leadership, under my authority, I'll just take you out. And that's a hard truth, right? That should make us all lean forward a little bit to know that the way of Jesus may be just a little different than what we thought it was. Look at Jeremiah 51, 45. Again, he's not saying anything new. This has happened before. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. This has happened before. This was run from ancient Babylon. He's saying run from modern day Babylon. He's saying to you today, run from Babylon. Run for your lives. It's not worth it. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. You're on the the verge of making a decision that you know intellectually is gonna ruin your life, but it's, it's it's like a train wreck. You can't look away. And it's so alluring that you're feeling drawn into it Man, I feel like God is saying somebody is about to enter into an affair and today you need to know it's not worth it and it will end in your ruin. You'll never get over it. You'll regret it for the rest of your life. It's a call of the church, y'all. He's not talking to non-believers here. He's talking to believers who have bought into the lie that it's all good. It's all good. And he's like, wake up, get out immediately. It's not worth it. But again, nothing new here. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember Lot's living right there in Sodom and Gomorrah? And if you look in in Genesis chapter 19, he tells him, with the coming of the dawn, the angel urged Lot, hurry, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, how many times has that happened to you, by the way? Some of you this morning, your heart's beating out of your chest because you know something needs to change, but by the time you hit the door, you will hesitate and you will think, "Uh, I think I'm okay. Who do you think's telling you that? Who do you think's telling you that, oh, it'll be okay, you can take care of it tomorrow? Yeah, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's the enemy who wants to convince you that you can stay just like you are and everything will be okay. It's the allure of Babylon. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as he brought them out, he says, what? Flee for your lives. Again, this is what God does. He invites us out of Babylon into freedom. Know this today, you're being invited out of Babylon into freedom. You're not here by mistake. You are here because the Holy Spirit has drawn you here. You are here on purpose for a purpose. And he wants to give you the life you were meant to live. But first, you have to flee Babylon. For a lot of us, we want all the benefits of what God has to offer, but we're not willing to flee Babylon. How did that work out for Lot's wife? Yeah, she looked back and salt. Done. That'll freak a brother out. (laughs) We gotta wake up and break ties with the system of the world. The system of the world is gonna pull us in. It will snatch you up. It will feel good for a season. But Proverbs 14, 12 says its end is destruction. So how do I know that this is for us today? I'm glad you asked because 
divorce, porn, lust for success and power, addictions of all kinds, all of this is rampant both in the church and out. I meet with a lot of you. And I know that you got the same stuff going on that the world has going on. And here's the thing, that, that's not a judgment. But, but here's the thing, if you're not willing to live in a new way under the authority and leadership of Jesus, I just think it's really hard for you to call yourself a follower of Jesus. Because following Jesus looks different. He will transform your marriage. He will take away your addictions if you'll let him. And too many times we're running from something instead of towards something. He's calling you to run toward him. There is freedom in Jesus. And again, everything I mentioned, those are not the problems. They're symptom of the problem. It's, it's, it's a heart condition. Here's the challenge. And let's just be honest. In some ways, we've brought Babylon into the church. Right? Individually, collectively. We've got to do enough introspection to look and say, hey, everything's not okay. There's something greater that we've been called to. Verse 5, it will start picking up speed now. Um, For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she's done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in her one day, her plagues, therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire for the Lord. It is the Lord God who judges her. So what it reminds me of is the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So the word Babylon, it comes from that word Babel. And if you were a student last Sunday night, Clayton Trestle walked us through Genesis chapter 11 with, with this great leader, Nimrod, who um, led them and Nimrod, that sounds like something you call somebody, right? That was actually his name. Um, but, but Nimrod was actually calling the city Babel. He was calling them to erect a tower to make their names great. It was all about self, self-exaltation. And so here the tower that's built up looks a little different. Look at the tower that's built up. For her sins are piled up to heaven. They're building the tower. It's not just about them. It is about the opposite of God. And it says, your sins are so high, they have reached me. Jeremiah 51 Verses six through nine, we see it again. Flee from Babylon, run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will repay her what she deserved. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken. Wail over her. Get balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. 
Let us leave her and each go to her own land. For her judgment reaches what? To the skies as high as the heavens. This picture again of this tower of sin that has reached the heaven. Then he goes on, he says, give her double what she's given. The sin is gonna be judged. And remember, the system which has waged war against the people of God has destroyed and brutally murdered God's people and exalted themselves in the process. He's like, hey, this is not gonna go well. What does Babylon say? I sit enthroned as a queen, holding herself in very high regard. Proverbs 29, 23 says, pride brings a person low, but the lowly spirit gain honor. Isaiah chapter 47, verse seven and eight, you said, this is a direct quote, you said, I am forever the eternal queen, but you do not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Man, saying, listen, you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. In James 4, he says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do you see the difference of these two kingdoms? The kingdom of Babylon is always self-exalting. And he's saying, listen, the enemies of God, they're gonna be paid in full. In fact, I'm paying them double. I'm doubling down on this. Okay, so this next section, uh, it's three laments, verses nine through 20. And so I'm just gonna kind of touch on them. But the, the, the first has to do with the kings of the earth. Kings of the earth committed adultery with her, shared her luxuries, when they see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will what? Stand off, stand far off and cry. Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. And so we see now the cries of those who put their faith in Babylon. She's a, she's a cruel lover. And now... They have used her, she's used them, and now as she goes to ruin, what do they do? They distance themselves. Hate that for you. I'm backing away. First, the kings of the earth who were drunk on the power provided, they don't run to her defense, but they distance themselves. I mean, it's a picture of self-preservation, isn't it? Have you seen that when, when something happens to maybe, uh, you see siblings do this all the time? that the sibling gets in trouble and the other one turns on them immediately? <laughs> she did it. <laughs> he did it. Yeah, I mean, it's this picture of self-preservation. And now as Babylon is going into ruin, the kings of the earth who lived off of everything that she could provide are back and I'm going, oh, wow. Yeah. And here's the thing. They're sad. They're sad because of what they've lost, not because of what she's lost. See, you run to Babylon for power and you run from Babylon when it no longer provides it. Second, there's this economic meltdown. The merchant 
Merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of Ciron, citron wool, and articles of every kind uh, made of iron, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horsage, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand where? Far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. It's the second time we've heard that one hour. Is this not a physical one hour? It's just saying, hey, listen, your cycle comes and your cycle goes. It is short-lived. Every empire that sets itself up against the kingdom of God will not stand. So it's interesting that 15 of the 29 commodities listed here are also in Ezekiel 27. If you're taking notes, you can write that down and look later. But again, nothing new. Nothing new. He's drawing from the past, and now God is drawing this thread of continuity from the past to the present to the future. God, the one who was, is, and is to come, he has not changed. Glory. When I was thinking about this Babylon this week, it reminds me about how the world reacts to the U.S. economy. When the U.S. economy soars, all other economies benefit. When the U.S. economy tanks, think about 2008, the world economy tends to be staggered by it, right? And that's this picture. It's this picture of, of this wealthy nation that now has all these exports and everyone is benefiting from everything that it provides for them to sell. And when it dies, they stand back at a distance and mourn and weep, not over their loss, but over their personal loss. Verse 14 says, the fruit you longed for is gone. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. It ain't coming back. It's all temporary. It doesn't last. So when I thought about this, here's what I thought. Money and possessions are a cruel God. When you're anxious, you're anxious when you don't have them. You're fearful when you have them because you're afraid of losing them. And you're sad when they disappear and the cycle starts all over again. If you live for money and possessions, they will always let you down because they're a cruel God. Third, the sea captains. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. Again, everybody's distancing themselves, right? No one wants to be a part of the carnage. What they were living on now, they've used up and they're trying to back away. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all, where all who had great ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. And in one hour, she's been brought 
to run. So here it was interesting that it says, was there ever a greater city, right? Was there ever a greater city than Babylon? And again, in Ezekiel 27, 32, and talking about the city of Tyre, in their wailing, they raise a lamentation for you. Who is like Tyre, like one destroyed in the midst of the sea, saying, has there ever been a greater nation than Tyre? Has there ever been a greater nation than Babylon? Has there ever been a greater nation than the United States of America? Who is greater? That's beast thinking. Revelation 13, four. Remember, they called out and said, who is like the beast? Living in that deception. And all of them stood at a distance, watching it burn, not lamenting the destruction, but their own personal loss. So 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about um, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Have you ever been sorry you got caught? That is worldly sorrow, right? Because when you're sorry you got caught, but you've really made the determination, if I had the chance, I'd do it all over again. That's worldly sorrow. And it leads to death. Why? Because it's a cycle. You know, as soon as the coast is clear, you're going right back to it. And for a lot of you, that's, that's how you live your life. Man, you live in this confession to God. God, I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry I did that. Are you gonna stop? No, but I'm sorry that I did it. Some of you may even say, I'm sorry that I did it. And I make a vow, I will never do that again. Have you ever made a vow like that? And what kind of shame comes on you when you repeat it? See, we don't need to just say, I'm sorry. It's this beautiful word called repentance. And repentance means this, I think in a new way about my sin. I, I now say that is no longer acceptable in my life. I've got to think in a new way about it. And, and for a lot of us, there's, there's the disconnect. We have worldly sorrow, but we're not willing to think in a new way about the areas of our life that are not submitted under the leadership of Jesus. Because truth be told, we don't want to change. And that's what's happening here with these three different laments. They're looking at it. They've distanced themselves from it. But that's not godly sorrow. They're looking as their system is burning to the ground. And they're weeping because they've lost their wealth. Because they've lost their power. Because they've lost the thing that was bringing them life. Maybe that's you today. Maybe your life's burning down around you and you're lamenting the loss of what was. Maybe this is an invitation from Jesus going, hey, listen, you can rebuild that empire, but it's gonna fall again. It's the end of Matthew 7, the house that's built on the sand. I've been very vocal. Man, I, I, I live that. The house built on sand it's built on compromise. It's built on secrets. It built, that's built on a lie. And it says when it fell, it fell with a great crash. Man, my life fell with a great crash. And I sit in counseling sessions week after week 
where people come in with a lot of worldly sorrow. Sorry you got caught, but not broken over your sin. Man, at what point do you realize your way doesn't work? It never has. It never has. Please hear me. Some of you are like, well, you don't know me. I don't have to. Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to man. That's you, by the way. If you're a woman, there's a way that seems right to woe, man. And, and, and the end is destruction. It never works. Here, you're living under the mercy of God because he's coming to you yet again this morning through the book of Revelation, inviting you into a different life. Because he's saying, listen, it will not stand. My judgment's coming. You don't know when. I'm inviting you into a better life. I'm inviting you to evaluate your life and stop giving yourself a break. Live for something greater than yourself. So verse 20, uh, a cry of exultation. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, uh, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. It's very simply saying, hey, listen, I'm vindicating you. The martyrs that were crying out from underneath the altar in chapter six, who were standing with Jesus on Mount Zion in chapter 14, he's saying, listen, I have vindicated you. I have taken care of your greatest enemy and now you are vindicated. Your death was not in vain. I am now making all things right and you will reign with me. And guess what? We're about to get to the good stuff at the end of Revelation. We've been wading through all of these judgments for chapter after chapter after chapter. Guys, it's been hard for me to walk through with you. I'll be honest. I'm like, another week. But flip through and read the end of the story. It's getting good, y'all. We wouldn't understand the glory of God if we didn't really fully embrace all of the evil that's in the world and realize that God has to impose judgment on evil in order for us to get to the place where he is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords over all things. So this last section, verse 21 through 24, we're out of time, so I'm just gonna let you read it on your own, but here's basically what happens. An angel throws a boulder into the sea and when he does, it all goes dark. It all just disappears. It says that all the music in the streets are silenced. All the sound of commerce and the busyness ends. He says that the light turns off. No more Babylon. No more Babylon. And while the system keeps rising and falling, God says, yeah, keep on. Because there's a moment I'm gonna flip the light off once and for all. Okay, so let's land the plane. Here are a couple of things I want you to think about as we close. Number one, ask yourself this question. Just close your eyes. You don't even need to write this down. I just want you to close your eyes and think about it. Where have I embraced Babylon in my life? So here's how you can get to that. Just think about your life and ask yourself the question, is there any area I would mourn if it went away? 
And I mean mourn like I can't get over it. Is there something that you've clung to so tightly that you would be just over the top devastated if it went away? In fact, you would say, if that happened, I would probably turn my back on God. If that's you, then in some way you've embraced Babylon. Where have you unwittingly partnered with the enemy? Is there a place in your life that right now your heart's beating fast and you know that there's an area of your life and right now you just, you're, you're looking around like, hey dude, don't tell me what to do. Just know this, I'm not. I've got absolutely nothing to gain from, from, from reading this passage today and from walking you through the truth of God's word. I mean, this is between you and God. But ask yourself, have I unwittingly partnered with the enemy? Where has life become about you? What you think you deserve? One of the cruelest ways the enemy works is through happiness. You deserve to be happy. Happiness is a cruel God because it's momentary. And it sucks you in, and as soon as you're not happy anymore, you're angry until you can be made happy again. And over and over, you're trying to pursue that thing that you think will make you happy. And when you can't get happy, then you begin to medicate to try to numb the pain because you're not happy. That's Babylon. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, hey, nobody can serve two masters. You have to choose. You have to choose. But here's what I want you to know. The kingdom of God offers an alternative to the kingdom of Babylon. Jesus spells it out in the Sermon on the Mount, and I just want you to take this in this morning. In the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, blessed are the meek, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are willing to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those who love and sacrifice, especially for your enemies, those who have a generous heart, those who would say possessions don't own you, a freedom from worry, a freedom from judgment, following down a narrow path, Jesus calls you into anti-Babylon calls you into his kingdom. And in the upside down kingdom of God, everything that the system offers you disappears because it's not the truth. And so Jesus today, would you just open our eyes just for these last few moments to the truth of who you are? For many of us, we have said yes to Jesus but we've been living in some compromises, keeping us tethered to the enemy. And I pray this morning that those bonds would be broken, that today we would allow you to shine a light on our lives and transform us. For others today, you're in the room and, and really the admission of your heart would be, man, I've given myself to something, but I see today that it's not Jesus. And Jesus, I want you to be the leader of my life. I don't wanna any longer be stuck in an old way of thinking. This is the word repentance. Make new. Think in a new way. 
And when you repent, you're saying, Jesus, I don't want to think that way about sin anymore. I don't want it to be acceptable in my life. I think I said it last week, but if I didn't, let me say this. When you repent, it needs to be very specific. Don't just say, I repent of all my sins. Jesus is going to say, that's great. Which one? Which one are you specifically talking about? Be specific because there's accountability in the specifics. And repent to God and then go tell the person that you would least like to tell about it. That's where the gut check comes. So Jesus, 